the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I'm Ben. Uh, I, I don't have a bridge to sell you. A bridge? Yeah, that's the old con thing that you say. Is like, that like the Tom Sawyer, like, tricking me into painting your fence kind of con? Similar. It's it, There was a guy who, uh, way back in the day, would pretend to own bridges. This has actually happened more than once. And then sell, huh. quote-unquote, sell the bridges I to people. I thought the bridges belonged to the people you know i thought it was like yeah. public work situation well the guy who was doing this yeah. the people who did this clearly could hey who are you i uh my name is uh noel pietro giovanni guglielmo tebaldo brown and that's our super producer casey pegram wasn't it like the brooklyn bridge specifically that uh that was sold to some foolhardy person yeah like, uh, that's kind of the expression, right? It's like, if you'll believe that, then I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you, that kind of thing. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Or some waterfront property. Right, somewhere. right, right. Yeah. 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 Timeshare, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. One of my favorite versions of that. Oh, you know what? I forgot it. We're going to have to keep going. We're, we're doing it live. We're yeah. We keep going. Barrel on through. I'll remember that scam later. We'll get back. Oh, wait. Word of warning. That's it. Nothing to do with, well, kind of something to do with today's episode. Uh, do you all remember those uh, those things where you could, like, adopt a star and you would get like a certificate of authenticity. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, those things are all scams too. Really? Well, kind of. Yeah. You can't really own the stars. Can no, you? No, no. It's like, can you paint with all the colors of the wind? It's I can. Like, you can paint with all the colors of the Most wind? Most of them. Really? Yeah. What, are, what are your strong colors? You, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't be able to see them. <laughs> I um I I'm that glad that you're deli- delighted <laughs> to point out that I'm red green. <laughs> no, please, neg, neg. No, more. I'm not negging. I, I love you with all my heart, Ben. You know this about me. But we are we are talking about um we are talking about cons. Today. True. 
and we are not diving into this alone, no. are we, Noel? No, we have an arbiter who's going to keep us from fighting over the colors of the wind. <laughs> it's true. And it is Chelsea Erson, the uh, host and creator and sound designer and uh, musician, engineer, engineer producer. extraordinaire, producer, all the things of uh, the amazing Dear Young Rocker, which is on the iHeart Podcast Network through Double Elvis, the uh, wonderful um, team uh, behind Disgraceland. And Jake Brennan, Chelsea, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here in humid, humid Georgia. Yeah. I love to feel my skin come yeah. alive. Well, that's how you, it's sort of like that Trent Reznor line about how he hurt himself to today to see if he still feels we feel through the sweat of mm. our of our bodies here in Georgia yeah. if you like you know sometimes living up north you're probably asking yourself what would it be like to feel like I hit a wet rubber blanket every mm. time I went outside and now you no longer have to wonder it's great yeah it's like <laughs> I can feel and smell myself in in ways I haven't thought of since August. Not to mention, it is uh, about tenfold here in this uh, sweltering shipping container yes. that we're sitting in right now. We yes. are in the, the most humid room in the humid building in the humid town. It's true. But uh, we have been inspired through our earlier conversations. Off-air, Chelsea, we, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And we have been talking back and forth about what kind of, what kind of story we wanted to examine in today's episode. And I'm not sure if you know this, but our show has a history of exploring cons, scams, mm. flim-flam artists, and so on. So this idea of yours was right up our figurative alley. It's true, and it has a tie to your city of Boston, Massachusetts. It certainly does. Mm. I am from the home of maybe the birthplace of American organized crime. I don't know. Maybe New York would get really mad at me for saying that. But They're usually I, pretty mad. You know, the mafia in Boston, like, we love them. We're mm -hmm. proud of them. Mm -hmm. you, know? <laughs> you were telling us a little bit about that. Off air, I, I remember the first time I went to Boston and it hit me that organized crime was very much a thing. And it wasn't just stuff that, you know, Scorsese had like embellished. Mm. I don't know. No, yeah. no, no, that's true. Um, and I guess what we're talking about today, it is organized crime. It's just a little bit like it's an organized crime enterprise of one kind of, you know. Right. And this notion of a con artist and I always was thinking, like, it's confidence man, right? That's mm -hmm. what it's short mm -hmm. for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it literally, I mean, to correct me if I'm wrong, the superpower of a con artist is is having unflappable confidence yes. and being able to, like, gain your trust and convince you that he can do no wrong and just sell you a bill of goods, right? Absolutely. As I was researching all different financial schemes, I found the one thing in common with all these different people is that they really, really believe their lies. And that gets other people to believe their lies to the point where even when they get busted, the people they took advantage of are like, I still believe in you. You're still my hero. Exactly. It's, it's amazing to have that self-esteem. I can't imagine what it's like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's simultaneously impressive and just, like, clearly very, very toxic and terrible. Oh, it's horrifying, yeah. yeah. And today we're talking about none other than the kind of father of, of this uh, flim-flam, um, Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tabaldo Ponzi, a.k.a. Charles Ponzi, born in 1882 in Lugo, Italy. Ah, yes. Ah, yes, Ponzi. The name will be familiar to many of us. We've heard of something called the Ponzi Scheme. 
Charles, or Carlo, uh, was was Italian, right? And he was a swindler. He also, you know, did something that a lot of con artists do, which was he was somewhat chameleon-like. At the time, when he traveled to the United States, when he became known in the 1920s, uh, it was as a more Americanized name, as Charles Ponzi. But, you know, as you pointed out, Noel, he changed that because he wanted people to trust him. Uh, Charles Ponzi, I feel like almost like we're starting a roast. What to say? What to say about our good friend? So much to say. So much. So much. His beginnings are interesting because Mm -hmm. he grew up like his family were considered some form of like gentry, like kind of nobility. Somewhat aristocratic. they had sort of like used all their money up by the time he was of age. Mm-hmm. But his mother still, like, the, the the phrase I used was spinning castles in the sky. Never heard that one before. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically meaning living beyond their means mm-hmm. and this idea of, you know, oh, we're still rich. We deserve this lifestyle. So he was raised with this entitlement mm-hmm. that I think really mm-hmm. carried over mm-hmm. into that belief you're talking about, which is such an important quality that he had. And he's a really multifaceted character. We'll get into some of that. But, yeah, so let's move on from kind of maybe when he um, immigrated to the U.S.? 1903. Right. November 15th. Boston. I'm, I've had a lot of coffee today. So, yeah, he's on the SS Vancouver, and he has one of those – this is the thing. We don't know if we can trust this guy, but he has one of those very American dreamy stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, he saw a lot of Italian guys around his age go to the U.S. and return wealthy, right? And so – his story is like, you know, I got into this country with $2.50 in cash and $1 million in hopes. That's beautiful. That's, I mean, if it's true. I believe the $1 million in hopes part, but I— How do you quantify? How do you put a dollar amount on hopes? I know, right? What, what, what price do you put on a dream? It's hard. Right? But before he even came to the U.S., I think he was doing a bunch of sneaky stuff in Italy, yeah. right? His mm-hmm. family was like, what are you doing? Pickpocketry <laughs> and the like, you know, yeah. just like kind of petty crimes, right? Right. And, and uh, he was escalating, really, mm-hmm. right? This was another move in his con. Now, we do have to point out, he's a very, very clever man. He did not know English when he got here. Oh. He picked it up. Uh, he quickly learned it, and he initially— He's probably still like stealing the odd wallet or, you know, slick talk and someone. But he uh, initially was just working a bunch of like, I don't want to say dead end jobs, but like odd jobs, whatever he could get, like dishwashers. Mm-hmm. Right. On, but yeah. things that he clearly thought were beneath him. Right. As yeah. an aristocrat mm-hmm. and having that entitlement you mentioned earlier. So we know who he is now. Right. But we also know this guy probably had that moment where he's like, I'm better than this. I'm not going to be a dishwasher all my life. I'm tired of sleeping on the floor of this restaurant. I got to come up with something big. So what What? What happens? Well, he did a, a couple goofy things. I know he went to Canada at one point, and he worked for a bank, and he, like, stole some old lady's money out of her bank account and went to jail for that, and he loves lying so much that he wrote to his parents and was like, yeah, I'm going to be working at this jail for three years, so you're going to get a lot of letters from here. And then he got out. I think he went to jail like a few times before he did his mm-hmm. his most famous dupe. So he decided he would get into arbitrage. I think I said that right. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. That's the first time I've said that out loud. Nailed it. Uh, feeling smart. So arbitrage for the uninitiated is when 
you basically buy some stuff on the cheap and you sell it for more money. And it could be like, it could be currency, like doing a currency exchange, getting it in a country where the dollar is weak and then exchanging it for U.S. currency that was stronger, whatever. But he decided to do it with these things called postal coupons, which I don't think exist anymore. And they're not stamps? They're not stamps. Like you use them to get stamps somehow. I oh, still don't wow. – it's like an old thing. But See, I, I didn't know about it either. Yeah. Uh, it, they're, they're called postal reply Re- coupons. Yeah. So I think the idea is it's sort of a converter like of, mm. you know, currency. Yeah. And, and he capitalized on the exchange rate being weaker right. in, in European countries. So his idea was, okay, I'm going to go over to Europe – buy a bunch of these coupons at a lower rate and then exchange them for stamps in the States Mm. and then exchange the stamps for more money. He was getting them in Spain, right? That's right. That's right. But he ran into this issue of like, oh, I have all these stamps – Oh and God. stamps don't equal money. Like, you can't right. trade stamps in a, the bank for cash. It never totally made sense Mm-mm. anyway, but people believed that it would somehow make millions of dollars. Ah, the power of belief. I'm just so excited because for years I've been trying to think of the most petty crime mm. that, like, the most petty crime you could actually get in trouble for. And I knew stamp fraud was the thing, but this is the first time I've found someone who managed to do it. Yeah. I, guess, I guess that 10% vague he was getting was was worth it or what? How did well, it work out for he him? He didn't even ever really get many of them. He oh. never even really, from what I read, he never actually bought thousands of these things. He like looked into it, never actually did it, but got investors to believe he was going to use their money to go over to Europe and buy all the stamps. Because it's like, it's it's such a novel sounding idea that it's like, oh, it's genius. Yeah. It's great. Why didn't I think of that? Double Here's my money? That's, bucks. Yeah, because he was, he was like <laughs> offering a return on investment that was just like unprecedented, uh, a.k.a. too good to be true. Right. But he kept it going for so long. And I think he, it's, again, it's like he's an interesting character. He, I think he believed that he was going to make good on it eventually kind right. of you know where he was like oh i'm not really scamming anybody i'm just you know trying to figure things out right you know? i'll go and, get those coupons later sure but then enough people handed him enough money that he was like oh i could just keep getting money and do nothing ah, really yes. quickly to backtrack to uh, a previous job that he had at a bank he worked at this bank and one of his managers uh, or the owner of the bank, I believe, was doing a very similar con mm. where he was uh, basically using other depositors' money to pay, like, interest to other depositors. Yep. And he kept doing that for so long, the bank eventually went bankrupt because right. it's not sustainable. But Ponzi saw this trick, and he was able to apply it to this right. uh, postal coupon situation. It's a very old trick. I guess it it goes back to like the beginning of civilization Mm -hmm. like as long as people have had money they do the hey give me your money i'll give you a bunch of it back and it'll just magically increase but eventually you run out of new money and you get caught takes money to make money right come on you know keep it moving the the, the old robbing peter to pay paul right scam i don't know where mary is in all of this oh mary mary was 
robbing Peter to pay Paul. Oh, there you go. It's like implied. That's I, the protagonist. That makes perfect sense. Which will be interesting later. <gasps> no spoilers. Agreed. Us. Agreed. So we do have to say, though, I, I love that you point out his inspiration in the bank. He was also inspired by other con artists at the time. I don't know if it's the benefit or retrospect here, but it feels like it was just way easier to con people. Mm-hmm. They didn't have, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have a phone where they could check Right. On your postal reply coupons. Right. There was no Google. And also banks were just very unregulated. Yeah. If you just had some cash, you could be like, I have a bank now. You just buy an office space and people come in and give you their money and then you have a bank. And that was it. Which I just, uh, I, you know what? I'm not afraid of asking the dumb questions here. Uh, just just to be cl- like, we can't do that anymore, right? I haven't tried to open a bank myself, but I believe there are many regulations. <laughs> I can't do like a pop-up <laughs> bank like you would do with a, a panini place or something. Like panini place and bank. Love it. I think oh. you should go for it. Yeah. You're on board. Thank you. You have a million dollars worth of dreams to deposit in that bank. <laughs> there right? we go. And I can turn your $1 million <laughs> into uh, $2 million. Well, you know what? Let me say, I can turn it into about $61 worth of postal reply coupons mm. because that's where... That's where Ponzi landed, Oof. ultimately, when they finally audited his company's assets. Uh, and this, this comes to us from a great, uh, a great book, Ponzi, the Boston Swindler. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> You're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. 
Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. So what on earth possessed the guy? You know, we've seen in the past that there are some people who just seem to love conning. They're almost like Christopher Nolan's version of the Joker where it's about sending a message instead of the money. But this guy, I feel like he enjoyed it personally, Mm -hmm. but I feel like he also wasn't just, um, as you would say, Noel, an agent of chaos. I feel like he definitely did want to turn profit at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, right? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it's tied to that American dream you were mentioning. He wanted to be like the Italian immigrant American dream. And that's also what I think a lot of his investors were also Italians. And so they probably liked that he was still speaking Italian. They trusted him for that reason. And so he wanted to prove a point. He went and bought a mansion with a heated pool, which wasn't a thing that like existed at that time. And he wanted to be like, yeah, like the next Christopher Columbus or something of of his community. And that's that's how they saw him. There was even a quote I, I heard in this um, history documentary about this where someone was saying he's the greatest man alive. And someone was like, what about Christopher Columbus? He's like, Christopher Columbus discovered America, but Charles Ponzi invented money or something <laughs> like that. Because that's the thing. He was beloved because as far as everyone was concerned, he was like being a really good steward of his community. Right. He was helping people. A lot of the people that were giving them his life, their life savings were not wealthy people. Right. And so that was a big deal for these folks to be able to turn that kind of profit around so quickly. And again, he was paying these returns with okay. like he would get new investors and uh, pay the old investors when they demand their returns or not demand. It was just a, I don't know how that worked. Like when you call in your oh, I want to take my money out. It's like right. when you want to cash your stocks out or whatever. Yeah. Then he would pay them their returns with the new money. Right. And it, he had so many people in the system that it kept escalating uh, by the he ran this for about a year. And by the end of it, he had taken in. Uh, around $20 million. Ben, should we inflation calculator that really quick? Why don't we? Let's, Let's see. 1920? Yes, sir. Okay, a drum roll. I'm going to imagine there's a drum roll here. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And the results are in. Thanks for that wonderful drum roll, Chelsea. Uh, $20 million in 1920 is equal to this number is so big that it's kind of difficult to read. So give me a second. I'm just going to figure this out. All right. Uh, $259 million. A little bit over that. A little bit over. 42 cents as well, if you're, if you're counting. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. that's pretty wild. Um, so, okay, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because it took a little time for this scheme to kind of unravel. Um, mm-hmm. And a big part of what happened was one of his earliest investors was this furniture magnate. Maybe them giving him too much credit there. Furniture dealer, let's call him. Salesman. Yes, entrepreneur. Furniture guy. Joseph Daniels. He was one of Ponzi's first investors, and he sued him for $1.5 million because he claimed that what he had given him was seed money and that he had a claim in this whole business because it was a business. Like, he bought a building. He had an office. He had sales. He had, sales. He had a line out the door every day because who wouldn't want to double their money, get right. 50% And he return. offered 
coffee and donuts every day, which somehow convinced everyone he was legit. <laughs> I would have gone just for the coffee right. and donuts. People like you if you give them food. He was so popular that a copycat company sprung up right next to him just mm. to pick off people out of his line, like offering like a similar service because, you know, there's one thing that scams attract. It's other scamsters yep. who are like, I want to get in on that uh, that that action. And that's exactly what happened. Well, let's paint a picture, too, of how he builds this empire. Mm. Because, again, you know, it's almost cliche to say it, but it was a different time. And in a way, he was very informal. He cultivated this image of success, this aristocratic kind of uh, vibe, for lack of a better word. And he would go to neighborhood cafes. He would show up at, at the bocce ball and, and, you know, he would glad hand. Mm-hmm. And he would always be kind of White Rabbit, Alice in Wonderland style in a little bit of a hurry. And he mm-hmm. would he would be your friendly guy who is good with money, who could give you a little advice, you know, for free. Just mm-hmm. like, hey, here's what I would do. Um I got some big opportunity. You know, I could help you out if you want. Oh, shucks, though. I got to go meet a client. How about I come back next Thursday? And in the meantime, tell your mother I said hi. You know, how's she doing? She good? And then he would come back. Mm-hmm. And so he built this rapport because people didn't originally feel like they were working with an investor. They felt like they were working with their friend who was good at investment, right? Mm -hmm. And then once that expands to the building, once that expands to uh, this this sales associate operation, you know, at at some point, most of the actual investment pitches that were happening in the Ponzi scheme were by people he had trained and not himself. And he was giving them a 10% commission when they got more people. And then those sales agents would recruit people they called sub-agents. And those Mm -hmm. sub-agents got a 5% commission. Just like a kickback in any nice mafia family. Well, that's how you do it if you're going to do it right, you know. Kickback's got to go all around so people watch your back so no one's, like, ratting out on you, right, because everyone's got to get their little little taste. Um, But, again, like, from the start, all of this was based on this unflappable kind of – confidence that the guy had. He always wore nice suits, Mm -hmm. even if he couldn't really afford it, he would make it happen. And it was all about the optics of like, look at me, I'm an upstanding business person. Listen to this pitch. It's the deal of a lifetime. You'd be stupid if you didn't do it. And people went for it. And he he really built it into this crazy critical mass uh, that was going to come screeching to an absolute halt. Yeah. By the time this uh, Daniels lawsuit comes into play, Ponzi has a mansion. He's got servants. He's got some dope cars. We haven't talked about his wife yet, have we? No, we haven't talked about Rose, and we really should. We really should because she was not so into this uh, this bougie lifestyle. She wanted a little bit more of the simple life, and uh, he even had to take it down a peg from what he originally wanted, like wow. mansion style, because yeah. she was like, you know, I, I don't really need, you know, the the 10-story. Let's go with, like, the 5-story. These are just 12 rooms enough. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why I'm shaking my hand. Just hands. two servants. Don't need a whole team of servants, but it wasn't really her thing. But she really loved the guy, and she stood by him even when we get into some of the uh, kind of the fall from grace kind of story that's coming up. Yeah, and I guess uh, she gave him $800 of her own money, too. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That makes her uh, complicit kind of, right? Like, if your husband's rich, shouldn't you not have to give him any money? I don't know, but... Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, every relationship is its own country, so we we can't really judge too harshly. So we know that in July he was also getting a lot of press, right, in 1920. He got some good press, and he he really worked that PR magic. He did 
you know, like the coffee and donuts and the, hey, how's your mom, whatever. He also hired the Boston PD to stand outside his office to, like, look official, like, oh, there must be millions and millions of dollars in here because we have the police and those are the people you trust, so you got to trust me. And people saw that and said, how do I get in there? How do I get <laughs> part of that money? Mm-hmm. Yep. And he also had the press on his side, too. Mm-hmm. Right? He's a PR genius. Yep. There was one article from the Boston Post that literally read, it had a feature on him, right? And it said, uh, like, Charles Ponzi doubles the money within three months, 50% interest paid in 45 days, thousands of investors. And then, then he leans into this rags to riches American dream story. And he's like, okay, I have, uh, you know, I came here with, what was it, a 250 or something? Mm-hmm. And then I said, million dollars of dreams. And in the Boston Post, they also do another thing that they help him do a thing that a lot of confidence artists do, which is uh, lie about or at the very least exaggerate their personal worth. So the Boston Post mm-hmm. is like, this guy's worth 8.5 mil, which is you know, not true. It's like that guy from The Apprentice. He did that a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's the, true. the orange guy. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, technically – Technically, it's makeup, I think. You think so? I don't think he's actually orange. Well, it's spray tan. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't is that it, count as makeup? As tan? Does it wash off? That's my question. Or yeah. is it permanent? I don't know. There's a really upsetting picture of him where his hair is kind of back and you can yeah. see the seams the on the side. It looks like a weird skin mask, like yeah. a Hannibal Lecter kind of situation. But we digress. Uh, Here's the thing, though. He did get some good press at first. He did have this PR machine that was led by a guy by the name of William McMasters, who was his publicist. Mm -hmm. He will come into play very shortly. But as you would think would happen in a situation like this where he didn't really have an out, he didn't really have, like, a plan for the future, he was just kind of, like, spinning his wheels until he figured something else out, which wasn't really going to happen, people started looking into it and being like, huh, this stuff doesn't really add up. He's claiming to, he's got all this money in circulation. There's only 27,000 total. I mean, like, you know, like uh, the number of postal uh, reply coupons is a finite amount. There's only so many circulating in the same way, like, there's so much cash circulating or, mm. you know, bonds or whatever have you. So they, they, this is known. He's saying, wait a minute. So he'd have to be moving around 160 million of these postal coupons in order to pay back the amount of money that he's got. Invested. There's only twenty seven thousand postal reply coupons in the whole world. That doesn't doesn't make any sense. Uh, and Clarence Barron, who was the owner of the Wall Street Journal uh, and then the you know founded the magazine, he's the one who kind of started to look into this and started you know turning over some some stones. And then his PR man himself, McMaster's. He saw through it as well because he wasn't in on the scam. He was right. just this guy's the golden boy. Like he's he can do no wrong. I'm gonna make some money and be a part of this. He started to see through it as well, and he was quoted and saying this about his boss: "The man is a financial idiot. He can hardly add. He sits with his feet on the desk, smoking expensive cigars in a diamond holder and talking complete gibberish about postal coupons. <laughs> what a life." There's another thing Barron notes, uh, Clarence Barron notes in that article where he says, okay, I look back through the stories that Ponzi tells these newspapers that love him. And he says that when people ask what he does with his winnings, he says that he invests like any other investor, real estate, stocks, bonds. 
And then Baron has that moment, a little click, click, light bulb moment where he goes, hang on, hang on, hang on, CP. If, uh, if your scheme is so good and you can consistently make a 50% profit, what the hell are you doing putting your money in stuff like regular investments that make nowhere near that much? Like what, what, what gives? And that's a question that people can't answer and it doesn't jibe with the carefully constructed Ponzi image, right? Right. That's when it starts falling apart. Yeah, it, that's right. It's like um, just I think about a month after that line that you mentioned, Noel, from McMaster's, regulators raid Ponzi's office and they're looking for millions of postal reply coupons. Oh, stamp fraud. I love it. I'm in. What do you call the stamp people? Philodists? Philodists? Yeah, yeah. Get it right? Good memory, yeah. Sweet. Yeah, you don't have massive hoarded stashes of these things right. because he never really bought any in the first place. Right. Boom. They, they don't got him. Exist. All right. So the S hits the F. Ponzi has used the mail to talk to people about their quote unquote investments. And when you mess with the mail, that gives you mail fraud charges. Uh, these are these are only some of the many charges he goes down for. Ultimately, he's charged with 86 different things in two different indictments. He pleads guilty to one and he gets off with what I think is kind of a, a brief Prison sentence? Mm -hmm. What is it? It's like five years? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, white collar crime. It's uh, the way to not do time. Hey. <laughs> hey. That's hey. a good mnemonic there. Yeah. Uh, that's not the word at all. Just a, a rhyme to remember things. That's a mnemonic. Mm -hmm. Oh, is that what it is? I yeah. thought a mnemonic was like letters that like each letter represents. Like Roy G. Biv or something? Yeah. I think any memory trick is a mnemonic. Like Johnny mnemonic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's remember a character. That? Yeah. It was a film uh -huh. starring Keanu Reeves. Oh, yeah, yeah, He's yeah. sort of a future uh, internet guy. He was always sort of building toward the Matrix, you know? He was. Yeah. Really glad they didn't give that to Will Smith. We, oh, that's right. Or Will Smith rejected it, I think. I think he did. It's true. Yeah, I think he did. You learn something new on Ridiculous History yeah. every day. Or at least something ridiculous. Yeah, it's true. Um, but here's the thing, too. Like, he knew that from the start. The stakes were a lot lower for these white-collar crimes. Oh, yeah. The rules didn't apply to the wealthy. And it's that same entitlement. There is a really interesting detail about Ponzi, I just want to bring up because I was saying how he's kind of a complicated figure. He did a really selfless thing before all of this stuff. There was a nurse or somebody in his community who was horribly burned in a fire and needed this really intense skin graft, and he donated all of this skin from the backs of his legs to like do skin grafts wow. on this woman. Yeah. And he had to be in the hospital for like three months to recover from this. So wow. it's strange because I really do, somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm like, he really wasn't trying to screw people over. He was just had this almost sociopathic kind yeah. of positivity or In whatever. In his mind, he, he probably really was helping people, oh, and yeah. that's part of it. He did that and probably felt like all the rest of it was worth it. <laughs> and, I mean, you watch interviews with Madoff, and he says, yes, I'm very remorseful for all the people's lives I ruined. And he just says it in a monotone like that, and you're like, mm. really, are you? And yeah. they ask him, "Don't didn't you, you know, feel like you, you were going to get caught? And I never thought about it. These people just that's how they do it. They just mm. really don't think about it. And they think they're helping people. They've convinced themselves. And 
now we know, now fast forward 2020, right? Um, we know that the biggest contribution Charles Ponzi ultimately makes to society is the concept of the Ponzi scheme, right? Mm -hmm. And he gets a lot of credit for it. Oh, yeah. So much so that it's named after him. Mm -hmm. uh, but in our earlier conversations, Chelsea, you did some digging and you've got a plot twist mm -hmm. for us today. Is that correct? I sure do. Um I just want to add one postscript because I think my favorite part about Ponzi is that after this, he went back to Italy, made friends with Mussolini, who sent him to Rio de Janeiro to run an airline because he loved him so much. And that's where he died. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He kind of got away with it then. He got away with everything. People just loved him. But anyway, <laughs> he, was, he was a really interesting character. He, he did really well at this with the help of the press. But did he invent the scheme that is named after him? Absolutely not. A Ponzi scheme is an ancient structure, and he wasn't even the first person in Boston to pull it off. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising, one with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
40 years before Ponzi, there was Ms. Sarah Howe. She is just as interesting as Ponzi, if not way more for other bizarre reasons. So she, like Ponzi, she targeted a group of people, a minority, instead of Italian-American immigrants, it was single women. Because in the 1800s, women couldn't really do anything with their money. If they were married or they were still living with their father, those men would uh, take their money and do whatever they wanted with it. But if they were a single woman, they owned their own money, but they couldn't start a business. They couldn't really do much. The only thing they could do is put their money in a bank. And so actually, at that time, most of the shareholders in the country were women, strangely, because Mm. that's like the one thing they could do is like sit at home and invest, I guess. So these women were referred to as unprotected females. And Sarah Howe was one of these people. She was divorced and she had been working as a fortune teller. And she decided to just start the first bank for women in Boston. And she called it the Ladies Deposit Company. I think the tagline was like a bank run by women for women or something like that. Pretty inspiring, right? If you're, yeah. if you're the target demo, you're reading this at home, you're right. thinking, finally, because the patriarchy is terrible. Right. Most banks wouldn't accept unprotected women's money because it was in small amounts. They were like, this is worthless. And she said, here I am. I'm going to help you invest your money. And in a few months, I will double it for you. And her reason for doubling the money wasn't buying stamps or anything weird. It was, well, it's actually even weirder. She said that a Quaker charity (laughs) wanted to help single women and was just going to, like, give them money for putting their money in the bank. It really was founded on absolutely nothing. But again, there was no regulation. She just could open a bank by herself. telling you guys, Panini Bank pop-up. Get in on the ground floor. <laughs> uh, we do accept payments in uh, postal reply coupons, but but yeah, you're right, and it's it's interesting because there's such an exploitation uh, of desperate times here that that very weird explanation doesn't give people pause. No right. one stops to say, "Hey, if these if this Quaker organization or these people are so great, uh, what why don't they just give people money?" Right. And it's I can see how it's kind of spun as like maybe we're um, maybe we're advancing equality or something, but it it already feels convoluted. You know, you would feel like philanthropists, if they're doing something for charity, wouldn't it be a little more like a traditional charity? Well, the thing, too, is like she immediately drew people's attention because what she was doing was so radical. And so she got a lot of pretty nasty press around her. Um, There was a headline, I believe, in the Boston Herald. Uh, The headline was Mrs. Howe's unsavory record. And uh, God forbid, claimed that she was born out of wedlock uh, and ran Mm -hmm. away at the age of 15 to marry a, quote, 
Indian physician who this is really offensive. You guys are going to say because I think it really paints a picture of the time uh, who was referred to as her, quote, dark skinned Othello. Um, just really muckrakey type oh, yeah. garbage, you know, and it wasn't because they thought she was doing anything illegal. Right. It was just because she was a woman who dared to be successful yeah. and to, to provide a service that women needed. But that's what makes her story all the more upsetting because she really was being completely duplicitous and like conning right. these people who were in need, who were looking to her, like her mm-hmm. own people, like, you know, oh, yeah. who she should have been protecting, right? Right. Women from all over the country were sending her money. She even opened a second branch in New Bedford. She wanted to open more offices in New York. And she probably could have gotten to that point if the press hadn't been so suspicious of her from the beginning. I mean, the fortune teller thing, yes. But also... Yeah, she's just a single woman, a divorced single woman, and even worse, someone who was married to someone who wasn't white. So Mm. that's very, very suspicious. If that was even true, we don't know much about her. But yeah, the the press was really on to her immediately, and they tried really hard to get into her bank and interview her, but she wouldn't allow a man even in the lobby. And so reporters were dressing up as women to try to get in and talk to her. And she had, I guess, the equivalent of $13 million today mm-hmm. in today's money in her bank at the height of her success. I just want to point out, too, that she was doing the exact same things as Ponzi yep. uh, before Ponzi, mm-hmm. and he was lionized for it. Like, she would also uh, try to get off, give off an aura or a vibe of wealth, you know? She was always right. dressed to the nines. Uh, she was incredibly intelligent. And she, you know, it, when the media took shots at her, she took shots back, right? There was a newspaper that critiqued her bank and she said, you know, uh, the fact is, my dear man, you really know nothing of the basis, means, or methods on which our affairs are conducted. And when shut up in the meshes of your savings bank notions, you attempt an exposition of the impossibility of our existence, you boggle and flounder about like a bat in a fly trap, which is like a hardcore murdering via words. You know what I yeah. mean? Like she, she, that's a smackdown. That's a smackdown back in this time. Yeah. And uh, she was a tough Boston broad. And that's inspiring too, yes. you know, if we're if we're her potential uh, banking clients who don't know we're victims, then you would think finally someone's standing up to these – I'll just say I, this might be skirting the line because we're a family show, but she's standing up to people who are being a bunch of dicks. Yep. And it's hard to get mad at that. Bunch of dicks being dicks. <laughs> there we go. So as you said, she reaches this height of financial success for her – But this can't last forever, right? It's unsustainable. Right. The money will run out. There will not be enough money to pay these returns at some point. And the press knew that and why they didn't realize that about Ponzi is mind-boggling. I mean, their problem with hers, she went from, you know, this poor, divorced fortune teller to a rich person in, in six months or whatever. Same with Ponzi, but he was celebrated for it. Yeah, I think maybe because of his uh, gender, maybe, had something to do with it. The fact that he wore a suit instead of a dress, I think it really freaked people out that this woman was, like, daring to go against the status quo. And we were immediately suspicious of her and started digging into her business. Whereas Ponzi, it took forever for them to even think anything was up. Everyone wanted to support him, and they thought he was just the best. He was cheered when he'd, like, get out of his limo, you know? I mean, And no one 
from what I saw in the articles about Ponzi from back in the day, said much about his appearance beyond he had nice suits and nice cars and nice furniture and whatever. But once the reporters start getting on Howe's case, you know, they say she is short, fat, very ugly, and so illiterate as to be unable to write an English sentence or to speak without making shameful blunders. Uh, Another article said she's cross-eyed, all kinds of things about how she looks, which I don't understand how that has anything to do with her ability to be a banker because Mm -hmm. at the time, like I said, you could just open a bank. So Mm -hmm. who cares if you're ugly, you know? Reminds me of another story we did on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, our other show about Marm Mandelbaum, who was like this kind of madam of like New York crime syndicate thing. She was a queen of fences. Yeah, queen of fences. And she um, mm-hmm. had a, you know, a school for pickpockets to teach. She was almost like a real life Fagan from Oliver, like had this kind of like all her little kind of urchins that would send out and, you know, they would uh, – um, graduate from like pickpocketing to safe cracking and you know it was almost like an x-men school for petty crime mm-hmm. um but she was bashed in the press in that same way and they took pot shots at her appearance and and stuff like that and uh it was just really interesting the way the press was so gross and cruel back in those days i mean not that it's not uh, yeah today, i was gonna but, say yeah. it'd be nice if it were past tense right yeah. right but we still see this now and uh chelsea you you shared a uh some fantastic research uh, with us from uh, historian Robin Holsart, who who talks about the weird amnesia that our culture has about Sarah Howe. Because if we're looking at it, it should be called a Howe scheme, right? And Absolutely. not a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. She was just as successful and she actually did it for longer. She did it for three whole years. Yeah. So she did it Longer, she's more successful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she opened multiple branches. She opened multiple branches. She did it in spite of opposition from society, right. rather than with the aid of society at the time. So, what happens to what? What happens to her at the end? What What would we call her legacy? What do we? I mean, mm-hmm. we know so little about her early life for sure. Right? Does she fade out of history? Does she? I don't know exactly about her death, but I do know, like Ponzi, she went to prison for not very long, three years. And three years later, when she got out, she started another bank, the Woman's Bank, and did the same thing. And she did that for two more years. How she was allowed to do that, I really do not understand. It's in the same town, and as far as I know, she didn't change her name or anything. So she didn't learn her lesson, like all Ponzi scheme people, she probably had no remorse and honestly felt like she was helping women with this. Eventually, she got caught again, um, and then she went back to her earlier scheme of fortune-telling. I mean, maybe she actually was clairvoyant, and that wasn't a scheme, but Mm -hmm. I think she was probably still swindling people, but using the same skills, reading people, appealing to their emotions, getting them to trust her, and predicting probably things like you're going to make a million dollars someday or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, people like that kind of fortune, you know what I mean? And people are are sort of paying for the the feeling of success, you know? They want that million dollars worth of dreams. You know, it's funny. We did an episode not too long ago about Houdini and how he, every city he would go to, he would like – basically out these mediums and like these uh mm-hmm. you know fake clairvoyance and he had 
a woman that worked for him, who the episode was about, who was kind of his like detective, who would go secretly to the towns before he got there and you know poses like a person getting a reading. She and, did the real work, and she did all the legwork to figure out the tricks they were using. And then at their, his show, he would call them out. Like his mother had passed, and there was a period where he really believed in psychic abilities. And then when he realized it was all you know, a scam, it really offended him on a very, like, personal level. Yeah. So he took it as this, like, cause to, like, I'm going to expose all of you frauds. Pretty interesting. So it probably would have been right around that time. Hmm. So with this in mind, uh, Chelsea, what do you think we should do in the modern day when we hear people refer to these kinds of scams as Ponzi schemes? I, I have to be honest, you know, I'm – I am to a degree defending the legacy of Sarah Howe, but I, we do have to admit, she, okay, she's technically one of the, she's a bad, she's an antagonist technically, right? Because yeah. she didn't actually help these people. Right. Though she may have inspired them, but where where does this leave us? Are we going to, are we and all our fellow listeners going to be the people at house parties when we hear the phrase <laughs> Ponzi scheme? Are we going to be the actuallys? And sure. Yeah, well, you know, there's this feeling that, well, in any area, there's always the man who's the symbol for greatness in achieving whatever it was. And then there's always some unsung woman who did it first and wasn't recognized and was torn to shreds in the press. But maybe that's good because people don't assume women are going to pull off great things, even great crimes. They don't assume a woman will take advantage of trust in this way. We think of women as more trustworthy, right? So maybe in honor of all of the women out there starting their own Ponzi schemes right now, we keep Sarah Howe on the down low and let them, you know, get that heated pool for a little while. I think that's a pretty solid takeaway. <laughs> for this Beautiful. Episode. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on this show. Now, I'm going to admit it. I thought Ponzi was the Ponzi scheme right? originator. Yeah. No, this is, this, is, this is new information. You went down like a Wikipedia rabbit hole and came up with some gold. He mm -hmm. has a more fun name, too. So he does. I, I get so that. So much is in a name. Uh, and speaking of names, I want to shout out one more time your podcast, Dear Young Rocker. Uh, could you share with our fellow listeners the best way to find the show? Hmm. Well... It's available on all the podcast places, including the iHeartRadio app. We knew that. Yes, and there is a DearYoungRocker.com website that has lots of fun pictures mm -hmm. and more information about me and all the episodes. So check that one out. And I'm also on Instagram at DearYoungRocker. Yeah, please do check it out. It's a really great show. Um, very much kind of a personal um, memoir almost of like your current self talking to your younger self about mm -hmm. how to kind of navigate all the crazy emotions and trials and tribulations of being kind of an outsider in high school and sort of coming into your own as a creative person and as a human adult. Yeah. For, you know, anyone who's ever felt like a weirdo, um, it's for you. But don't take our word for it. Check it out today. Don't delay. Uh, while you're on the internet uh, befriending Chelsea and following Dear Young Rocker, you can also check out my trusty co-host and I as individuals on our own uh, 
versions of Ponzi schemes, social media. I'm at Ben Bullen on Instagram and at Ben Bullen HSW on Twitter. You can find me exclusively on Instagram at How Now Noel Brown. Big thanks to Chelsea for being our guest today. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was a pleasure. Uh, huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegram for always being our Huckleberry, our, our main guy. Um, big thanks to Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit as always. Jonathan Strickland, the notorious quizster and also a person uh, of interest um, who may have been doing some schemes like this in his uh, time away from the show. Who knows? It feels like classic Strick. It I really think does. I told you this before. He's a real sketchy character. In D&D alignment, he would be lawful evil. Mm. So he is a stickler for rules and technicalities. Why do I feel like I'm warning you about this guy? Watch yeah. out for him. Oh, gosh. So, uh, so um, <laughs> We also want to thank, of course, Gabe, who is going to be appearing on the show. We've got some more special guests lined up, and we want to hear from you in the meantime. What is what is your favorite villain that has been forgotten by history? What's the most ridiculous con you've heard of? You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, and tell us about it. Heck, what's your favorite con episode we've done here on this show? I feel like we've been doing a ton of them lately. We had that Diamond Con mm-hmm. I think recently. we actually did an episode on the guy who sold the Brooklyn Bridge. Did we really? Parker, I think we did. Oh, how do I not remember this? I don't know, man. Um, What kind of con can you get away with in 2020? I'm slipping here. Oh, I don't know. Um... Maybe something something Corona based, probably something mm. social media based. You yeah. get enough followers, get yeah. people to think you're, you know, a chic or something. I guess this has recently happened. Uh-huh. You just kind of put on the costume, and people will let you into their exclusive hotels and parties and on their jets. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I almost want to cut that part out so we can try it before people learn about it. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, tune in for our next show where we'll have uh, more strange tales, ridiculous. Noel, you're you're so much better at ending the show. Am I? I think so. Ah, thanks, bud. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Uh, I just usually say we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. 
True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.